Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Kate Merkel-Hess about her new book, The Rural Modern, Reconstructing the Self and State in Republican China. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Now, the book looks at a really focused case study of um, of diverse group of people who were interested in and involved in rural reconstruction, okay, sort of rural reform in the context of Republican China. So um, the book focuses on the 1920s and mostly the 1930s. But as it does this, it also opens up over the course of the story some really, really fascinating, um, interesting, and, and in some cases really funny sources for understanding rural reform, for understanding a movement that promoted literacy in the countryside, for example. And it also, I think, effectively transforms what we think about when we think about modernity. Um, you'll hear at the beginning of the conversation that one of the things we talk about is the tendency to associate the modern with cities, with the urban. And one of the really important things that Kate shows here, and one of the, I think, important reorientations um, that the book affects for how we think um, when we think modernity, is that um, there were really meaningful uh, efforts with long-term consequences of promoting and creating a particularly rural kind of modernity and modern citizen. So when we think about efforts to modernize, when we think about modernity, we shouldn't just be thinking in and with cities. The book asserts that these efforts toward rural reconstruction were not failures, even though communist efforts to um, work in and with the countryside typically have received much more historical and popular attention, and these other efforts haven't received as much attention, still, they were successful. Um, They were successful in part in establishing an important precedent that has reverberated through modern and contemporary Chinese history um, and really has a strong resonance in today's China. China. So as you hear the conversation to come, um, you'll occasionally hear us talk about that. And certainly toward the end of the conversation, we'll talk about, and Kate in particular, will talk about the importance of and the reverberations of um, this movement in today's China. So with that, I'll leave you to it. Thank you as ever for listening, um, for supporting the channel in that way. And I hope you enjoy the conversation and have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book because it's a really great read as well. Here we go. I'm here today to talk with Kate Merkel-Hess about her new book, The Rural Modern. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for writing a fascinating book, and thanks for making time to talk with me about it today. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Carla. I'm really excited to be here. So, Kate, let's start um, with the traditional question for the podcast. How did you come to work on China, and why Republican China in particular? Mm -hmm. This is a question. I'm sure you get asked this question. A lot of us who study China um, are asked this question about how we come to the study of China. And so I 
thought about it and given many different answers over the years. Um, and I think there are some slight resonances in my childhood that I look back to. And I think there were these little um, flares of interest that I had in China very early on. My mother had some books of um, the Kenneth Rexroth translations of Chinese women's poetry that I read as a child. Um, the Tale of Genji was on my parents' bookshelf, and I read that as a 10-year-old and was fascinated with it. And then I started um, studying Japanese in high school. So I was in high school in the early 90s, kind of the peak of um, people in the U.S. being really interested and excited about Japan. And um, so I started studying Japanese. And then when I got to college, um, I started taking Chinese instead. I switched from Japanese to Chinese, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved learning all the characters. I loved my classmates. I loved my teachers. And um, then I started taking some history classes. I was at Yale. I took a class with Valerie Hansen and then a class with Jonathan Spence and had the opportunity then to study abroad in China. Um, and so that brought together my interests in history and in studying the Chinese language and then eventually studying China more broadly. Um, so that's kind of, it was a long and winding path, but I think in many ways it started with a kind of imagination about China as a child, reading those poems, reading Japanese literature. Um, I remember there was a time, I must have been only eight or nine, my mother decided to make red bean buns from scratch and we had a moon viewing party in the backyard um and that just fired my imagination so much it seems so um so exotic um and and that was you know those those little flitters of interest um eventually grew to um sort of full-blown excitement about china i love that and i love when a life story at least in part starts on a bookshelf Yes. <laughs> yes. Happen to be in a bookshop. I just love that. Yes. No. It's great. No. I remember she also had the um, pillow book of Seishon again, which um, I remember was up very high, and I was told, "Don't read that book." So of course, I dragged a chair over <laughs> the sofa and got that book down and read that book. Um, so yeah, absolutely, literature was a way a way in for me. Mm-hmm. So the book that we are talking about today, um, there's a lot going on, and we'll talk about it over the course of our conversation, um, but at least in part, it argues that, um, in the words of the book, the communists were neither the first nor the only group of intellectuals to look to the villages as the foundation of a new nation in modern China. Mm-hmm. So the book looks very closely at a loose group of rural reformers in the 1920s and 1930s in China who were trying to create, um, in the words of the book, a rural alternative to urban modernity. And there's a lot of fascinating things that happen over the course of this story. But to kind of start us off there, can you say a little bit about what brought you to this project? Why mm-hmm. rural reform? Um, why the countryside? And why this particular period? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, again, there are these threads that came together in making this um, a project that I was really interested in. So I grew up in Iowa, in Iowa City, um, and my parents had been graduate students at UI and then settled in the area. Um, they weren't academics, but um, 
both of them were from rural areas. My mother from northeastern Iowa, from a small town there, and my father from southwestern Wisconsin, um, also from a small town. And growing up, I was really, really close to my mom's family. It was kind of a clannish village. Um, My grandmother was part of a very large family that all lived uh, in sort of adjacent plots of farmland. Um, And so I was always very interested in the countryside, um, always very interested in rural issues, but also felt... um, you know, I was the city kid. I was the city grandchild, the city cousin or whatever. Um, and so I always felt that cultural difference, which I recognized um, very early in the reformers that I was studying as well, that many of them had that experience or had that kind, that same kind of background and, and feeling um, and tension between uh, city and countryside and wanting to be a part of both in many ways. Um, and then the other strand I think is that prior to starting graduate school between college and graduate school, I did a year of, um, volunteer service work with homeless women and children in Sacramento, California. Mm. And that was a really, um, profound and eye opening experience for me, um, as I think it was meant to be, um, but it also made me, again, very conscious of these tensions between kind of do-gooder reformers like myself um, and the people that I was trying to help who didn't always want help in the way that it was being given to them. Um, so I think that both of those um, personal experiences then led me towards, I I wanted to do something on social reform and social outreach. So when I came across this topic, I thought, okay, I think there's um, something here for for me to think about and look at and grapple with. Um, And then I think the third thing is what you flagged kind of in your introduction, which is that I thought it was also a window in or a way to broaden our context for uh, communist success. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't so much a driving question today, but certainly for the better part of the mid to late 20th century, one of the questions that preoccupies modern Chinese historians is how did the communists win, particularly in the United States, where it's this critical Cold War question. How could these people have possibly won? Um, and I think one of the things that I began to see doing this research was that, um, there were holes in our contextual understanding of where the communists came from, um, and how broadly shared many of their concerns, methodologies, um, forms of outreach were among reformers of varying ideological commitments in China in the, in the 1920s and 1930s. And that I thought allowed us to think of the communists as part of a, um, to think of the CCP as part of a much broader conversation that was going on in China during that period of time. And one of the really interesting um, aspects of that part of your work that comes up really early in the book, I think, um, as you discuss this context of rural reform, 
um, in the world of the 30s as riotous, right? There mm-hmm. were lots of different people working in lots of different yeah. venues and registers. And you talk about the kinds of challenges as a historian of teasing out the differences and the similarities between these different groups of reformers. Mm-hmm. So I think um, hopefully we'll get back to that. And it's a really yeah. interesting part of the um, the story from the perspective of methodology. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is a project that started out as a dissertation. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. So in the transition from dissertation to book, in in, uh, terms of that metamorphosis, were there any major changes um, in how you were thinking about or shaping the project or really any notable aspects of that transition that you'd want to share? Yes, the project changed significantly between the dissertation and the book. The um, structure of it is completely different. The dissertation, if I'm remembering correctly, had been a long time since I read it. Um, I, I believe it had nine body chapters. Oh um, boy! Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and the and the book has five. Mm-hmm. Um, and the part of it was, I think, that after writing the dissertation, I was then able to see, which is often the case. Of course, after writing the book, now I can see again more, even more clearly, um, how um, you can sort of move the little Rubik's cube around and the squares move and you can rearrange them. Right. So, um, the dissertation was thematic. Um, and I think one of the things that was a real challenge about this process, this project was it's kind, it's kind of unwieldy. Uh, there's so much potential. There are so many potential people I could talk about so many potential projects, um, so many stories to be told. There's so many different ways to approach it. Um, and so the dissertation was an exercise in many ways in grappling with um, that unwieldy body of information, that sort of unwieldy archive. Um, and so the chapters in the dissertation were thematic. So I did a chapter on um, opera reform, which is part of a part of that survived as part of it, part of chapter three. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a chapter on health reforms, which didn't make it into the book, uh, at all. Um, I did a chapter on agricultural reforms, which I cut down to, I think it's got cut down to a, sadly to a three or four page <laughs> section. Um, there was some very hard cuts along the way. Um, but then once I'd done that, I kind of organized this all into thematic chapters, um, sort of organized around activities that reformers undertook. Mm-hmm. Then when I decided, when I was doing the revisions to turn it into a book, I was able to kind of think more about what was the process of reform and what were the stages of reform. And so I tried to intertwine those two so that the structure of the book would reflect those those two things so that you would move along throughout the book, thinking about the, the changing ways that reformers engaged with the countryside, how that shifted their, um, their methods of engaging with rural people and reaching out to rural people and attempting to change rural people. Um, and what does that tell us that about them, about their project, uh, about China during this period of time, and then also about, um, early 20th century social reform and outreach and eventually development. Um, so that was, that was the shift in the thinking as I moved towards the book. So the, but I think most noticeably reflected in the change in the structure. Great. 
Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So let's actually get into the book itself. Great. So we've already talked a little bit about, um, or at least mentioned the fact that there were lots of different kinds of people and different groups that were engaged in this process of rural reform in this period. And you mentioned early on, I think in the introduction, that these rural reformers, um, uh, in the words of the book, coalesced around an idea of rural reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So as a way of diving in, can you say um, a little bit just briefly about this notion of rural reconstruction? Um, What is important for us to understand about that concept as we move then further into the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea to talk about rural reconstruction. And I, I note there, just in terms of terminology, that of course, in Chinese, this is not rural reconstruction, it's literally rural construction. It's um, And it was the term pre-existing in English was rural reconstruction. So this is a term that gets kind of... Um, slapped on top of what is happening in China, but had already been around, sort of kicking around in global um, Anglophone discourse for um, more than two decades by the time um, they begin to use the term uh, people writing in um, in English, writing about what's happening in China, begin to apply this to what is um, going on in China um, and match it up with this Chinese term, which is first first begins to appear as best I can tell in the late 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, so rural reconstruction is this project of um, transforming the countryside by transforming rural people, by transforming selves, by transforming individuals. Um, and the notions that reformers have about what that transformation looks like changes over time and how they're willing to engage with rural people about it changes over time. Um, But it starts out as very much a, a kind of individual singular project of the remaking of the self um, through initially through education, Mm -hmm. but engage more broadly in, uh, you know, the idea being that once they are educated, then people will realize that they have to be healthier, they have to be uh, good citizens, they have to be engaged in their communities, they have to be better parents. Um, So there's this whole range of better uh, agriculturalists, there's a whole range of activities um, that get swept up in this that are very recognizable um, to those of us who t- study China as standard components of the modernization project in China during this period of time. And I think what's notable is that um, it's being applied to rural people. And these reformers had the full expectation that rural people could be just as modern as urban people could, which doesn't fit our um, typical definition of modernity. Um, there's a, a an edited volume that Wen Xinye did um, a while ago now, and I think it was 2000 or somewhere around there, uh, edited volume when everyone was doing the Shanghai studies, people were thinking about Shanghai and modernity. And in the introduction, it says, you know, modernity is an urban phenomenon or something along those lines. Um, so our conception is very much that um, these two things are tied up. The city and being modern were tied up together. 
And so I think what's really interesting here is to see how that project of modernity is being adapted by these reformers um, in order to be suitable for rural people. Uh, And their very strong belief that uh, China had to modernize, of course, that's standard. We know that's kind of part of the story of early 20th century um, uh, elites in China, that China has to modernize. Um, But that that, they didn't believe that that would happen necessarily through urbanization. Uh, They didn't want it to. They thought that would be destructive. Uh, And so their idea is, well, then we'll take modernity out of the cities and we'll transform it for um, the countryside. We'll make it possible for rural people to be modern. Now, one of the really interesting ways that this idea of a distinct notion of modernity in the countryside, of a rural modernity, comes up is in the literature that emerges out of a movement that you focus on in Chapter 1. So Chapter 1 opens by taking us into this really fascinating source presenting an idealized version or a notion of the modern countryside Mm -hmm. in a three-part lesson on a model village in something called the Farmer's Thousand Character Reader. And there's a clock tower. um, And I think Mm -hmm. this is an image that's at least in my um, copy of the book on the cover of the book. It's a really fascinating source. (laughs) So this chapter looks at literature like this um, that's created by a movement of reform um, that you call the mass education movement. Okay, mm-hmm. So the chapter introduces this mass education movement and then brings us into the literature they're producing, the priorities they have, and the way that this helps actually create this distinct notion of rural modernity that, that we were talking about. So mm-hmm. to dive in, Kate, can you talk um, a little bit about this mass education movement? What's important for us to understand about this movement, to understand the work that's happening in this chapter? Mm-hmm. So I think that part of the work that's happening in this chapter is that the mass education movement is in the, in the United States, the best recognized among scholars of the, the reform movements um, that were part of this rural reconstruction movement. In China, people know more about Liang Shuming. They don't know about the mass education movement um, because the mass education movement has long been identified, not without reason, uh, with um, uh, an American-driven vision of reform. Mm -hmm. A lot of the MEM's uh, mass education movement's funding is coming from Western sources. Uh, The founder of the mass education movement was a man named Yan Yang Chu or Jimmy Yen, as he was known, James Yen, as he was known in the United States, who had come up through a series of missionary schools in China and then um, went and got his BA at Yale and was very involved in the YMCA. So he had all these American connections and American visions um, of uh, how reform should happen. And the mass education movement's leadership roster was stacked with American PhDs and BAs. Um, and so there were all of these connections. Eventually they ended up being funded by, by the 1930s, by the Rockefeller foundation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a story about the MEM that their notions of how reform should happen and how the countryside should be changed are very Western and thus, not particularly influential in the long term. 
But I think that part of what I found in reading all of these other sources, and they were so fun to read, the textbooks, of course. It are, seems that way, right? That, that, that's very I, clear from this chapter. Yeah, I had so much fun with these materials. Um, uh, the primers were great. I had started reading these materials in um, my second or third year of graduate school. So they were wonderful, easy. They're literacy primers for illiterate people. So they were easing me into uh, heavy reading in Chinese sources. Um, and the, then there's a, a newspaper that they produce as well that I use and that I read pretty much cover to cover eventually. Um, and just sat down, read the whole thing. Um, and it's not all held in one place. So it took me a while to find um, to find it. The, they keep publishing this journal, this newspaper that the mass education movement started to publish starts in 1926, but they continue to publish it through the late thirties. And those um, you can track um, as all of us who work on this, all his scholars who work on this period of time, know you can track uh, the shift in, people's um, material conditions through the quality of the paper uh, because it degrades over the course of the 1930s as people move to the Southwest and are refugees and don't have access to the same caliber of resources. So the, the, the quality of the newspaper physically disintegrates over time. Um, but that was also, it was also written for what they called new literates, uh, people who had just been taught to read. And um, it has a wonderful vocabulary, a kind of earthiness to it, um, as well as um, uh, a lot of information about at least what reformers believed rural people wanted to read about. Um, And these sources led me to the conclusion that we had underestimated the mass education movement's influence on um, literature during this period of time, on things that are very hard to track, like people's perceptions of what it meant to be, now we would say a modern person, but at the time, you know, just like a sort of -of up-to-date, of-the-moment person. Uh, What did it mean to be with it? What did it mean to be um, a young rural person trying to make your way in the world as it is shifting in front of you? Um, And I think those things are really, there's a give and take that's happening in the literature itself that you can track over time as these reformers are spending time in rural areas, responding to rural people um, gauging their concerns and then writing different kinds of things in response to it. Um, so I set out initially with this project. I thought, oh, I'm going to, as we often do at the beginnings of projects, especially early in our careers, so optimistic about the kinds of sources I would find. I'm going to find, I don't know what, I thought I would find diaries by oh, rural goodness. people or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know how this goes. <laughs> You're so optimistic. Of course, I. Oh goodness, yeah. But it's so hard to find the voices of these regular rural people, um, and so I think one of the things that was really exciting about this literature in particular is that I found at least what reformers are presenting as the voices of rural people. So there are letters to the editor in these newspapers. There are 
um, quotations in their funding reports from talking to farmers that they're um, moving around with. There are, um, we'll get, um, we'll get back to this in the third chapter, but there were, they wrote a lot of reports, some of these reports of like drama troops moving from village to village, um, reporting on what they're seeing and who they're interacting with and how. Um, and that was the, that was the best I could do in terms of excavating, uh, peasant voices. Um, and so these were exciting sources for me in that regard that I think, um, this was the, um, the closest I was going to get to, um, any sort of existing interface with regular people. And the idea that, and, and there's a, a photograph in the book, um, um, of, James Yen conducting a courtyard class in Dingxian, uh, and that they're sitting with the primers in front of them. So, of course, we we are all teachers too. We know our students don't necessarily absorb everything in the books that they read, but there's a there's um right there's a there's at least detritus that is left behind in the mind of all of these, um, this exposure to all of these ideas and these words and this vocabulary. Um, and so I thought it meant something to look at the kinds of topics that they're discussing in these textbooks or newspapers. Um, the, um, emphasis on science, on agriculture, on, um, the model village, as you said, I love that. Um, and I didn't include all the images that, that each lesson had a depiction with it. So the cover of the book and then inside the book is also the uh, final image of the model village. But they had um, 2D renderings of, you know, the, the, the layout, the plan for the model town with it um, marked off, you know, how many schools would there be? And here's the park and the gymnasium and, you know, all of these different little things that they thought were were necessary components of a modern village. Um, yeah. So this is um, a super interesting chapter, and we could easily spend another two hours talking just about this chapter. And I say that to apologize to listeners and to you for moving on from this, because um, there is so much more that we could talk about. <laughs> but also, um, just to kind of preface um, something I, I just want to mark about this chapter. Um, so that, as you mentioned, right, these reformers are using this material to promote this idea that literacy is the basis of modern ci- uh, citizenship. And when right. listeners become readers and um, work their way through this chapter, they're going to find some really interesting ways into some of this literature, these primers, the thousand character reader. Um, there's a primer called, or there's a, a material called the farmer who has this um, Lao Wang, right? This man right. Who, like this, who's a poor guy who doesn't know how to read and he gets into all this trouble because of it. He like, <laughs> drives his cart into a wolf pit and he like gives someone else or takes mule medicine. And I don't yeah. think he was in jail. So it's really, really interesting. There's also um, a really interesting discussion of women um, in, in, in mm-hmm. and and this reform literature. Um, and also uh, we see the beginnings of a thread that runs through the rest of the book in this chapter. And that is um, kind of the ways that these rural reform efforts in China are resonating with efforts elsewhere. So there's a, a really interesting transnational thread 
um, that looks to contextualizing this um, a little bit more broadly, but never in a way that takes the focus away from the context you're looking at. And this um, comes out really nicely in chapter one. So just so that listeners know, um, Mm -hmm. at least some of the things they'll find when they open up. And just as an aside, um, the section on Lawang, I loved Lawang so much. it was the very first thing I wrote. Really? Yeah. So that was oh, the very first awesome. piece um, when I was in China still doing my research. I started writing. I'd been in correspondence with my advisor and he said, you know, maybe you should sit down and start writing some things out. And I thought, I'll, I'll start with Lao Wang. That was it. That's yeah. great. And it would be yeah. awesome. Like it, it seems like that would also be a fabulous kind of source to teach with too, if you have mm-hmm. students who can actually read some Chinese or mm-hmm. it, there's a, it's just such a, it's hilarious. So yes, mm-hmm. listeners, um, do at least, um, look at this material in this chapter because it's awesome. So this takes us to chapter two. Um, I'm going to briefly talk about this and just kind of ask you to open up one part of it. Again, we could talk for probably hours about this. This looks, um, this takes us out into the countryside. The chapter is called to the countryside. And it looks at the ways that literacy education and rural reform projects in the countryside were kind of based on ideas of self-transformation and self-discipline. Now, you talk um, here in ways that we won't have time to get into, but I just want to mark this. You talk about the ways that reformers are inspired by Sun Yat-sen's notion of the importance of the psychological reconstruction of the people. So that's definitely an important part of the story. And the chapter looks at some similarities and differences between two major projects, one of which actually went on to be quite influential and the other uh, didn't. The really influential project was something called the Xiaozhuang School. This was a normal school on a hillside outside Nanjing where students labored in the fields, kept daily journals, and experienced a rural education that was meant to, quote, commonerize them. So as just a super brief entree into the work happening here, Kate, can you talk a little bit about um, what's important for us to know about this school and why this was so influential, whereas the other case here, this vocational educational or vocational education society, was actually not um, as influential. So I think um, what I was doing in this chapter was really wrestling with um, the fact that the focus of the story ends up being on reformers, and that's a, that's as I've already talked about, kind of a source uh, issue. Um, whenever you're working um, on peasants, but also I think came to be for me a really important component of the story that it's a, um, a given for us um, as often as scholars that there's this group of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people in the twenties and thirties who go out to the countryside to reform rural people. This becomes part of this, um, foundational experience for many university students and high school students in China during this period of time. Um, and what was that about? Why did that, why did that take off? And there are many, many explanations, um, for why it did. Um, but I think this chapter was, um, part of me grappling with that in many ways, resonating back to what I talked about very early on in, in our conversation, um, which was my own experience being this, reformer, uh, dropped into, uh, uh, social 
um, and geographical milieu that was very foreign to me and um, trying to figure out how to do something with it and what it meant. And also recognizing that it was more, in many ways, a more meaningful experience for me than it was for the people I was attempting to help. Um, And so I think that was part of what I um, was grappling with here was, okay, for a lot of these reformers, their focus wasn't just on helping rural people. They were remaking themselves as well. They were, this was a, um, an experience that was supposed to be a sort of, um, a kind of epiphany for them sort of coming to, uh, their real selves. Um, and that's certainly something that the founder of the Xiaozhuang school, Tao Xingzhi, the educa- the famous educator, Tao Xingzhi, um, was very honest about that he and and struggled with himself um, and in both uh, very self-conscious ways and then sometimes uh, not so self-conscious ways. But he will say things like, I've never felt so completely, this is a highly educated man who uh, did doctoral work at Columbia and he comes back to China and says, I've never felt so much myself as, wearing, as when I'm wearing the clothing of of Chinese peasants. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's a kind of, um, that sensibility infused the Xiaozhuang school. Uh, there are these, it was shut down by order of the government in 1930. And there, uh, one of the anecdotes I have in the chapter is that, um, one of the students, um, former students reflecting on that said, well, when the government troops showed up, they couldn't distinguish between peasants in the field and the students at the school. Mm kind of a new experience in China, um, in a society that typically would, it would have been important to make those distinctions, to mark those, um, social distinctions, those education distinctions, um, on the body, um, uh, through clothing, through all kinds of different ways, posture and so on. Um, and, so the Xiaozhuang school really embraced this idea that um, students would be like peasants. And Tao Xingzhi was eventually a favorite of the CCP, though he was never a communist himself. Um, in part, I think, because of this, because he embraced this idea that elites should would be um, best served by transforming themselves to be more like peasants. Um, and in the process, then peasants would also be transformed. So it's kind of a reciprocal process of transformation. The other um, school that I focus on in the chapter, the Chinese Vocational Education Association, which started also started a rural uh, uh, experiment, a rural school, um, an experiment around it, was not particularly well known. And so I was curious about why these two projects generated out of the same group of Western educated scholars uh, working in Shanghai uh, and Nanjing. Um, why is one so successful and the other really didn't never gain traction? Mm-hmm. And I, I think part of the explanation is that people were enthralled by this idea of elites transforming themselves um, and wanted to experience that. Um, And the idea, more vocationally focused school, 
of just transforming peasants, of making peasants more scientific, more educated, and so on, didn't have the same sort of media appeal. Um, it wasn't going to go viral in the same way, I guess, as much as things could go viral in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and it didn't. Um, and so that idea of a school where urban youth could come and they were mostly leftists at the Shadron school could come out and could be educated in how to be more like peasants um, and thus generate a national identity out of that experience, what it meant to be Chinese, um, took hold. And we see it replicated. The Shadron school is closed before anybody starts to talk about a rural reconstruction movement in China um, but it became this touchstone for reformers throughout the 1930s. We're looking back very consciously on it. Liang Shuming visited uh, the Xiaozhuang School and made observations about it. Many other reformers visited the Xiaozhuang School or were uh, its personnel and students were, uh, once it was closed, kind of filtered out to lots of other reform locations taking this idea with them. Thank you so much. So there's also a whole bunch of other stuff happening in that chapter, um, but well, let's move on to the next chapter. So after this account of the distinctions between these two different efforts, um, the you know one which is premised uh, more on a kind of self transformation, the other which is premised more on kind of uh, prioritizing the importance of technical knowledge, right? So this mm -hmm. is, and this is also a way of thinking of kind of modernity as self-transformation versus mm -hmm. modernity as like a, as it involves a specific knowledge set. So there's right. a really interesting kind of commentary on, on alternative versions of modernity mm -hmm. and what it is to be a modern um, subject and person as well happening in chapter two. But then we move to chapter three. So chapter three looks very closely at efforts to organize the village community. Mm -hmm. um, it talks about the importance of rural reconstruction as, um, quote, the better control and management of the rural people and as social education um, as a way to do that. Now, after a really, really um, fascinating, I think, account of organizational charts, and I want to just mark that because it's so interesting from the perspective of the history of the visualization of knowledge, right? The, diagra the diagramming mm -hmm. of knowledge. And so I think listeners and readers who have a particular interest in kind of visual organization um, and charts and mapping um, and the history of diagramming and categorization and that sort of thing are going to um, have a lot of stuff to work with in this chapter. But after that, you give us two examples of efforts to promote um, rural organization through social education, and then a very different example of um, a way to promote um, this kind of, or a different vision of the relationship between individual and community in a military settlement. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, we could talk about this probably for the rest <laughs> of our time. It's so interesting. Um, but I want to kind of, because you said there was a whole chapter, right, in the dissertation and a whole bunch of information about the um, reforming of uh, opera. Right, yeah. In the opera tradition. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about that, just as a, a brief entree into this chapter. So you talk about the rewriting of the village opera tradition here mm -hmm. in Dingshan, for example. Um, for you, what's most important for us to understand about this? 
So I think what's really important to understand about this is that I think what we start to see here is a pivot. This is kind of a pivot point in terms of um, reformers' engagement with rural people. Mm-hmm. So when they're first um, in, a, in the mid-20s, most of the reformers that I was writing about were still based in the cities. And so they're imagining the reform process. They're going out to rural areas but they weren't living there. By the 19, by the early 1930s, late 1920s, early 1930s, many reformers were moving to the countryside and sometimes moving their whole families with grandma and grandpa, you know, uh, to rural areas. Um, they were starting their own schools so their children could be educated to the level that they deemed necessary. And they're engaging with village culture in a way that they hadn't previously. Um, and so one of the things they do, and this really grows out of um, the emerging social sciences and the ideas of methods of observation and collection of social data, and that that was valuable, um, which, of course, Tong Lam has written a whole book about, um, but that, that that's part of this. And so they're doing that. They're going out and they're observing, um, they're writing down the scripts for Operas, Sidney Gamble, um, scion of the Gamble family, who did research in Dingxian and in other areas in uh, China, collected with his Chinese counterparts. Um, interestingly, the published volume of Chinese opera, his is published under his name with his two Chinese co-authors. In Chinese, it's just published under the two Chinese co-authors' names. Um, so I don't know how, you know, he translated them, but I don't know how involved he was in the collection of them. Um, so they're collecting the scripts of these operas and um, then, but it's not just a collection. They're not just scholars. They're collecting this data so that they can transform it, so that they can make it in their mind better, more modern, uh, more wholesome, uh more productive. So it has a productive end. Um, and so opera reform is fascinating because of course it has as uh, this incredible hold, this incredible cultural and religious, um, and social significance in rural, in rural China, uh, and particularly in these area, in these areas in Northern China. And so people are very open to the idea that there will be more performances of opera, but they're not always keen on the moralizing that reformers are interested in doing in the context of opera performances. Um, And so there are these fascinating kind of uh, studies that they do where they find, um, you know, that that, um, um, villagers are really unhappy with certain twists of stories. They don't want um, uh, certain kinds of endings to stories. They want kind of climaxes of dramas, so so on and so forth. And and the reformers are not always providing those in modern operas that they write for them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that what we see here is then uh, the way that this fits into the broader chapter um, is that what reformers are really interested in doing is organizing rural people. And they see opera as a particularly great way of mobilizing um, groups of villagers to work together. And they're not, 
unique in doing so. The communists um, very famously uh, also used um, drama. Um, of course, Brian DeMere was on your program a few <laughs> months ago, maybe it was. Yeah. Um, he's written a whole book, again, about uh, the use of opera by the Communist Party. And um, so lots of reformers are seizing on these um, traditional, in their eyes, quote-unquote, um, ways of the traditional um, cultural forms in order to try to push their uh, their own message of what a reformed society looks like. Um, so it's, this is a chapter that changed, as you said, I had a whole chapter on opera um, and I published a, a longer piece about that's uh, a more information about opera in 20th century China prior to the book coming out in the journal 20th century China. Um, but this chapter brought together um, the material from about three different chapters in the dissertation, but also added uh, um, a framework that it didn't have in the earlier um, iteration, which really grew out of the organizational charts that you mentioned at the beginning of the question that the, the whole section on organizational charts wasn't even in the dissertation. That was totally new. And it was something that I kept, I was kind of worrying away at because, um, in the course of doing research, I just didn't find a lot of visual images. And so when I would find these charts, which were, some of them are reproduced in the book. So you've seen them. Some of them were just incredible pieces of design they were beautiful, and some of them were huge, which I wasn't able to reproduce some of the really big fold-out ones that would get put into these reports where they'd have these big flowcharts of uh, ideal um, personality traits that a reformed person would possess and all this kind of thing. Um, they were just amazing, and I didn't really know what to do with them. And so when I started writing, sort of revising and rewriting this chapter, I thought, oh, that kind of draws everything together because I think that's what is going on here in all of these different examples in opera reform, in tea houses, uh, which again is a section that largely got cut out of this book, um, in agricultural cooperatives. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll just go read a bunch of, you know, there's a bunch of scholarship, I'm sure, on organizational charts. There's a really not much out there. Um, nobody's written a history of organizational charts. It seems like a, someone should write that history. I think it'd be interesting. So, <laughs> Listeners, pay attention. That could, that could actually be a super cool yeah. um, graduate thesis at some yes. level, right? Yes. That, I would read that book. I would read that book too. I would totally read that. Okay, so somebody out there who's listening right now, please write that book and we will gladly read the book. Yes. And, you, and I will interview you about that. <laughs> okay, but back to this book. Um, so there's a lot more, again, in this chapter we won't have a chance to talk about. And I've already briefly mentioned this middle, military settlement in um, Suiyuan. And um, again, we won't have time to talk too much about it, but I want to just reiterate that that's there because one thing we haven't talked about that's actually all throughout the book is the importance of engagement um, of these materials, of these issues by the military and by soldiers. Um, I mean, there's an account that we haven't talked about in the first chapter, I think, about the um, ways that some of these primers um, were used by warlords to educate soldiers, right? So right. I think listeners who are interested in that aspect of military history and warlords and soldiers, um, there's a lot of stuff happening in this book around that that may not be obvious um, based on what we've been talking about, but that's there for the reader who picks up the book and explores. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a chapter that I'm actually not going to ask you too much about at all, um, but I just want to mark chapter four um, mm-hmm. as we move toward um, the end of the book. And if you can believe it, the conclusion of our conversation has gone really fast. Chapter four looks at self-governance efforts in the mid-1930s and tensions between scales, right? Scales of the local, scales of the national Um, For example, as the nationalist government launches its own reconstruction efforts. Now, some projects actually featured, um, or some projects discussed in this chapter, featured a really close alliance between these rural uh, reconstructionists we've been talking about and Nanjing. And this alliance actually begins to change and compromise, in a way, um, the vision of the rural reconstruction movement we've been talked, well, we've been talking about. So the chapter, among other things, um, you know, raises the question and then explores and answers the question in a way: Why were these rural reconstructionists willing to work with the nationalist government at all? Um, and it brings us into some of the shared. Um, ways that they were relying on Sun Yat-sen's ideas, which were themselves, as you show here, um, pretty vague and open to interpretation in a lot of different ways. Um, It talks about different uh, examples and cases of this working together and ultimately shows that at the end of the day, both of the sides, um, the rural reconstructionists and um, the nationalists, were disappointed um, in this relationship, right? It didn't quite work out for either one of them. And things change even more as we move to Chapter 5. Chapter 5 looks at the quick rise and fall of this movement around rural reconstruction as reformers are are turning away here from early ideas that we were talking about, about self-transformation, right? In these early chapters, we saw that, and toward notions of development. This is very, very different. Um, You talk here in this chapter about a figure that's already come up incidentally um, in our conversation. This is Liang Shuming, who is a um, a really famous rural reconstruction theorist. And you also talk here in detail about some of the complications that arose from foreign funders who start funding this, who had their own agendas, including the Rockefeller Foundation, um, which you've talked about um, a, a little bit already when we talked about the MEM. Now, an, a really interesting moment here in this chapter that I'd like to just kind of pick out as our way of opening into this chapter is um, the transformation that happens with the Japanese invasion of North China. Now, here, as you're showing, rural reconstruction becomes linked to Japanese resistance. Um, and there's a kind of a, a larger turning away, um, again, of the from the earlier um, kind of values of perhaps we can, as we can refer to them, of the movement towards something much different. So as a way of just maybe highlighting what you think is most interesting and important about this um, final body chapter, chapter five, Kate, can you talk a little bit about um, what happens, perhaps, um, if this is uh, something you're interested in as well, with Japanese invasion, and um, how this uh, larger transformation in this chapter uh, is happening? Yeah, I think the, the Japanese invasion is, of course, critical, as it is to most stories about China in the late 1930s. And it has, um, there are multiple, uh, it causes multiple things, Um the there's an immediate physical dislocation. Most of the reform projects have been located um, in either North China or the Yangtze Delta. So, of course, those are the areas that are occupied. In some cases, they become 
centers, as Ding Xian, for instance, does, centers of uh, where the mass education movement had been based, become some of the uh, the centers of worst uh, sort of brutal back and forth fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many reformers pick up and leave, um, in 1936, 1937, mm-hmm. um, the mass education movement relocates to the Southwest. Some of the other, um, projects that had taken shape in the Northeast also relocate, um, to the Southwest, um, and so physically, the invasion dislocates the reform projects um, and scatters them. Um, and what the reformers then encounter is in the Southwest, um, as folks who study Southwestern China know, um, is a very different um, cultural, linguistic, geographic landscape than they had encountered in North China. Um, and they're in many cases quite unhappy about it. Uh, they don't know how to manage, uh, some of the ethnicities, the ethnic groups that they encounter. Um, they're surprised by some of the cultural traditions. Uh, they find, um, an elite class that is much less willing to work with them in many cases, um, or that they just don't have the connections to. It makes it hard for them to proceed. Whereas in m- many of the places that reform gets located in the north and in the, in, in the um, Yangtze Delta are places that uh, village elites had invited them in, essentially. So um, they had uh, local partners that they were able to work with, um, which sometimes worked out well and sometimes didn't, but uh, they had those partners nevertheless, and they don't necessarily have them in the places that they relocate to. Um, So it shifts things in those ways. It also shifts the, um, the rhetoric around rural reconstruction. I think then also this is reflective of a shift in actual methods um, that people are much more um, focused on um, quick outcomes the transformation of rural people was very slow and reformers were willing to take that time in the late 1920s and early 1930s. They were, I wouldn't say they were patient precisely. Um, They were often impatient with rural people in fact, but um, they saw it as a long-term project of transforming the countryside and making it modern and productive 1937 changes all that. There's no time left and everyone feels that it has to happen immediately. And so that means a a very profound shift. Um, And this had been happening in some ways over the course of the 1930s, as I talk about, as you said in the last chapter, because foreign funders had begun to dump money into China to uh, fund rural reform efforts. Um, And they had very different goals in mind than many of the Chinese rural reformers. They wanted to train village cadre. They wanted to train village leaders. They wanted to train engineers um, uh, and teachers and health experts who could go out and implement uh, change in a lot of places at once rather than focusing on creating model communities where every individual within the community was a, a 
participant in the modernization and transformation of that community. Um, and so that shifts the approach and the methods and, and that, that trend, that change becomes very rapid after the Japanese invasion because people become uh, much more focused on the necessity of those changes happening quickly. Uh, And so we get what had been always present in the rural reconstruction movement, um, but not necessarily its dominant register, um, this kind of top-down elitist effort at reform becomes by the late 1930s um, really part and parcel of what rural reconstruction is about. Um, and so I think that kind of tugging that apart a little bit was important for me in doing the research and the writing, because I think that's what, uh, as scholars, we often look back and you'll sometimes read this in assessments of, uh, rural reconstruction work, particularly within the Chinese language, um, scholarship on it where scholars will say, well, it was kind of a failure mm-hmm. um, in part because it was elitist. And that is true, I think, by the end. But it wasn't, it wasn't universally true, at least, in the beginning. Um, and so tracking, I think, the movement over the course of this 15 years or so, 20 years almost by the end, um, gives us a much more nuanced picture of the shifts and the reasons for those shifts uh, in reformers' engagement with rural people. Excellent. Thank you so much. So we do um, uh, see this shift, um, just to kind of put a point on this as we move to our conclusion, um, we do see this turn away in this chapter, right, from this idea of self-rule of enlightened uh, rural citizens, as you put it here, toward training local cadres, right, who could, like, implement these policies. And then you um, also bring us into the further reverberations of this and of precisely the kinds of transformations you were just talking about in terms of a turn to developmentalism. Mm-hmm. Um, we see the reverberations of this as uh, we go into the post-war period in the conclusion and sort of mm-hmm. look toward the future. Mm-hmm. So, Kate, um, so there's so much more that we could talk about. And we're now, um, shockingly, at the end of our hour. It's been it's amazing. Such, I know. It's been such, <laughs> I think, um, already an interesting conversation. And there's so much more we could talk about. But hopefully listeners um, will find the book themselves and then pick it up and be able to read about all the things we didn't uh, translate into voice. But in the meantime, is there anything um, in the meantime that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I want to mention is that um, that there's a contemporary story or framework to this as well. Um, and so there's a new rural reconstruction movement, which Alexander Day has written a whole book about, actually. We, uh, we were both writing at the same time, uh, aware of each other um, in the final years of our, of our dissertating. Um, so those are the, the two books are kind of, uh, you could read them as a pair, I think. Um, so he's written much, much more. But I think it's an important um, framing for the book that this is not a dead movement, as, of course, as historians, we feel very strongly, of course, that nothing, you know, it always, um, it's always possible for it to live again. And I think that's been true with rural reform. And we've seen that in the last few years, um, certainly over the last decade, um, that issues of 
whether or not it's worth modernizing rural China are these people who are worth investing in. Um, now we see a big push by the government to urbanize people, to move them out of the villages, uh, an emphasis again on a kind of top-down efficiency. Um, and pushback from villagers saying, no, I'm, you know, we would like to maintain and retain the communities that are so vital to us socially, uh, spiritually, economically, um, politically. And so this is a story that has continued. Um, it was locked in place for a while, uh, in the early communist period, um, but now, again, we see those tensions reemerging between urban and rural areas and the question about whether or not villages should be preserved is a really um, salient one. And I think we've reached the tipping point uh, now that, we, you know, I think we'll look back in a decade or two and say that was the moment uh, when we moved towards a um, a totally urban China, not totally urban, but a majority urban China, which of course we already passed demographically. So I think that's um, another part of the book, another part of the framing for the book that was important for me as I was writing it was thinking about um, what are the contemporary resonances for this story and how does it continue to matter um, in China today? Excellent. And speaking of moving toward and moving on, mm. now that the book is out and congratulations on it, Thank what you. are you working on now? Um, what's currently inspiring you in your work? Yes. So I'm writing a, my second um, book project. I'm working on it is on a history of warlordism in China. And it grew really directly out of this project. As you mentioned, there's a lot of discussion in uh, the book about warlords using these methods of warlord engagement um, with uh, um, reform movements, the warlords being the regional militarists who governed China during the 20s and uh, the 30s, in some places at least. Um, and so that got me thinking about them. When I first encountered them in the course of this research, I just thought of the warlords as brutes, as military strongmen. And I was surprised to find them funding things like uh, Feng Yixiang funded the Xiaozhuang School. Um, uh, and what I, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story. It feels like an apocryphal story that he provided the Tommy guns that they used <laughs> to protect themselves from bandits. Um, but so there were these stories um, that surprised me. And so I started to look at the warlords and to find that they were, um, you know, rational, um, political leaders in many cases. Um, they saw themselves as legitimate leaders. They attempted to create a new style of political leadership. An important part of that leadership was the, um, if you talk about it cynically, the deployment of their families, uh, in the new media environment that exists in the early 20th century in China to, to put their wives out there as public figures, as part of their um, public persona. Uh, they're in some cases modern, usually modern, educated wives. Um, and so that's what I've been working on and thinking about is the warlords in a broader social and cultural context, looking specifically um, at their families um, and thinking about uh, how the role, the political and social and cultural role that their wives and daughters played. 
Um, so I have a piece coming out in Frontiers of History in China later this year on uh, Fang Yuxiang and his wife, Li Dechuan, who became the first minister of health in the PRC and held that position uh, through 1965. Um, and so I'm looking at their relationship, the, the emergence of her as a public figure uh, and the way that that was bound up in many ways with her role as um, the wife of a warlord. Um, and then the book will look more broadly eventually at a number of case studies um, beyond just Fang Yixiang and Li Dozhuan. Well, best of luck with that work, which also sounds fascinating, Kate. And thanks for taking time out of that to talk with me about this one. Um, it's really yeah. been a pleasure. Congratulations again. Thank you so much. I am. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun to talk with you and to think about the book again. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very, very much for joining us at the podcast, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>